LifeWatch podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension educator. For today's BeefWatch podcast, we're going to discuss an article from the November issue of the BeefWatch newsletter titled, How to Meet Your Cow's Nutrient Needs When Feeding Hay This Winter. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Mary Dronowski, who's a Nebraska Extension Beef Systems Specialist. Thanks for joining me today. Well, I'm glad to be here. Well, Dr. Dronowski, this is the time of year, I think, when a lot of folks are getting hay hauled home or getting hay purchased and delivered and we're probably not seeing a lot of hay be fed yet. Most cattle still out on corn stalks or just getting to corn stalks, maybe still grazing some pasture or other crop residue. But hay feeding is not that far away for some producers. In this article, you just talk through what are some good principles to remember as you think about developing a hay feeding plan. And let's just discuss those. Yeah. So the the number one is actually getting a hay test. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the hay that you have this year, even if it's your hay harvested off of the same field as last year is not the same as last year's hay. So that's probably in my mind, number one thing, right? And then we can talk about how to, how to actually obtain that. And that is important. Probably the number one source of error when it comes to your lab analysis is actually how you collect that sample. A grab sample is going to represent a very, very small area in the field and thus is not very representative of the hay in general. And so it is worth taking the time and effort to use a hay probe, which means that you either need to buy one or you need to borrow one. And we do have them to borrow. You know, Nebraska Extension has one in most of our offices that are available to borrow. I will acknowledge that a lot of them need a good sharpening, <laughs> which you can do. <laughs> uh, but, you know, using a hay probe is quite valuable. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And I've had a number of people I work with recently say, hey, Aaron, where can I buy one of these? Because by the time they figured I got to make a trip to town, then I got to get it home, then I got to go back to town. Maybe I should just buy one of these. And uh, I've had a number of people I work with actually do that, save themselves time. It's in their pickup. They can use it when it's more convenient. Sometimes somebody else has got the hay probe checked out. So if you have questions about what a good hay probe is, uh, contact one of us and we'll give you a list of what our our thoughts are. And then you can decide which one would be a best fit for you. Yeah. And actually in the article, I, um, I linked to another article where we put in all the places where we have hay probes. But in that article, I also have a link that's to a listing of all the companies that sell hay probes. And, and that can be useful because it has their contact information. And, you know, everybody has different opinions about what's a great hay probe. Um, so I, I'd be interested in hearing yours, Aaron. But for me, there's a couple things that I particularly like. And, and one of those is I like ones that have a canister because I don't like to have to empty them after every probe. And I also tend to prefer those that have like a straight edge, not a serrated edge. And that's because I can sharpen it myself. Um, and so it increases the likelihood that it is going to be sharp. What do you look for? Yeah. So I really like the ones with the canister. Um, I'm a little different than you. I do like the serrated edge on the the hay probe. So it's one that basically is kind of cutting as it, it goes through, which is, does the same with your one that you can sharpen. I'm, for me, I don't have any big data on this. So this is totally biased and just my opinion. So probably worth worth nothing. But I'm just thinking about some of these bigger stems on some annual forges and things like that. I feel like maybe the serrated edge, as long as it's sharp on that hay probe when you drill in with your cordless drill, 
uh, maybe gets us a little more representative sample. But my saying that don't have data for that. So I wouldn't disagree if you had good reason to go with one that you just sharpen the end and, and basically a thrust type one. Uh, well, actually, Aaron, I think um, both can be effective. We long time ago, uh, we did some some work with uh, it was like the Penn State one, right, that has the serrated edge. And it was a dump, right? It, it's not a canister. And then we had another one that was the the, the straight edge, and we were doing corn stalks. And so we sampled with both uh, types, and then we also basically took a um, a section out of the corn stalk bales. And so we we were looking to see how well do they represent what was there. And to be honest, both came out with the same results um, and they were both fairly representative. So as long as it's sharp, I don't think it really matters the type. And so that's the only reason why I like the straight ones is just because I can do it. But you can also just buy uh, most of the serrated ones, right? You you can buy the, the tips and you just want to make sure you have multiple tips so that when you do think it's getting a little dull, you can put a new one on. Yeah, great point. Great point. So the first step is the hay probe and buying one, they're not that expensive, right? They're, they're a couple hundred dollars, um, well worth the investment. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think let's just talk about getting a representative sample. So that's the other thing that I, uh, you mentioned a grab sample is not an effective method, but as you think about a lot of hay, you also need to make sure you get a representative sample of what's there. So it's not just going out and poking a couple bales, it's really looking at what do I have and how do I get a representative sample from that? Talk through that a little bit with us, just so we're thinking that through accurately. Yeah. So I think one of the things that it's really important when you, you know, set up your, your haystacks, right, is that you separate your hay based off of um, what we would consider a lot. And so a lot is really like the same field that was under the same management and harvested at the same time. So if you have a field, and even if you harvested at the same time as another field, if those have some different histories, it's best to keep them separate um, and to mark them in some way if you are going to stack them in the same stack so that you know I'm going to sample this hay separate from that hay. So, and really when we talk about sampling a lot, I mean, ideally you sample 15 to 20 bales in that particular lot. So you get a good representation because the great thing about the probe, right, is that it is taking a small portion of all of those layers. So it's representing a lot of different locations in the field. And the more bales you do, the more locations you're getting and um, the better the average is going to be. Yeah, and I think for folks that want more information on that, uh, some good articles on our beef website on how to sample hay, probe bales, get then a representative sample from we, what you actually collect. Because if you collect uh, 15, 20 bales, there's way more in your bucket than you're going to need to send in. So then thinking about how do I get that sample divided down so it still represents accurately what I have, because as you said, sampling error is a big part of not getting an accurate representation of what you actually have. Yeah. And that's a good point, Aaron. The, I mean, the other part of that is, uh, you know, you, there are different diameters for the, um, the hay probes. And so if you are going to be sampling 15 to 20, you don't actually need, you know, the, the really large diameter probes uh, because you will be getting enough material with some of the smaller ones. But again, it's all about making sure that those things are sharp because they can push, 
um, those harder materials away. And the smaller it is, the more likely it is to, for that to happen to you. So we've got our hay sample taken. Now we're ready to send it in for analysis. What do we need to think about there in terms of what we want to ask for and uh, what kind of information we want to get back? Yeah, so I think I think the one of the things that confuses people, there's a lot of options, right? When you go and you look at uh, a lab sheet, they give you so many different options. And and two main categories I think is really important for people to understand is, is really wet chemistry versus NIR. And so wet chemistry is kind of the old school, what I would say, method. And it's more expensive, but it's them actually doing the analysis on the feed stuff. And then the other one, NIR, is they're, they're basically using an infrared and shining it on that, basically measuring um, what they received back, and they're correlating it to samples that they've actually ran wet chemistry on. NIR is cheaper, and it can be quite effective. And one of the positives of it is that you get an analysis and you get a lot of information in terms of a lot of the nutrients for a relatively low cost. However, like all things, you know, there's always positives and the negatives. And the, the challenge with NIR is if your feedstuff is not a common feedstuff and they don't have a good equation for it. And also I will say that the other thing is that they have to identify that feedstuff. So if you don't tell them what it is um, and they have to guess, that can also lead to some error. So your sampling labeling is really important. And then you have to recognize, is this something that's common or not? If it is something that is common for the region of the lab you're sending it to, they likely have an NIR uh, equation. Now, frankly, you don't have to guess. That's one of the greatest things. Like you can actually just call them and ask them, hey, you know, this is the sample I have. Uh, do you have an NIR equation or do I need to do what chemistry? And they'll tell you. They would rather do NIR if they can, but they'll also tell you if they feel like what chemistry would be a better option for you. So when in doubt, give them a call. No, I think that's a great recommendation because out where I'm at, Western Nebraska, we've got you know things like hay millet, sorghum sedan, OP. I even see people bail up kosher, Russian thistle, things like that at times to have something to feed. And so there's probably not an NIR on Russian thistle and kosher, but <laughs> there may be on some other ones. So yeah, give the lab a call, see what they know, and then make your decision. Some of them actually have their, their NIR equations listed on their website, um, and that is helpful. And some labs you know, have more extensive libraries than others. So that's the other thing. Like I will say you know, some labs do a lot more forage analysis, and so they do have uh, a more extensive library. And so that's one of the positives of going to uh, a forage-specific lab. And then there's a the thing about regional. Like, so, you know, hay produced in southeastern U.S. is different from the hay produced in the western U.S. And so uh, making sure that the equation is based off of um, your region is useful. Okay, so the other thing that I, I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit is that I often get this question, I get my results back, right? Whether I used NIR or wet chemistry, and sometimes they'll have two numbers and you're like, which one do I use? And you always use the one that says dry matter basis. Those numbers are going to be higher than as fed basis is usually, or as is, is the other column. Um, but dry matter basis is how all the nutrient requirements of the animals are actually stated if they're on a dry matter basis. So that's what you need to look at. And it also helps you to compare uh, between feed to feed directly, if that makes sense. 
Um, the other one is really about, I often you'll have multiple TDN numbers and you're like, which one do I use? And sometimes they're very different. Uh, and so ADF TDN, which is just based off of some, uh, a fiber component. So it's basically correlating a fiber component. So it's the lignin and cellulose to the energy value versus what what I call summative equation or ORDAC equation. So OARDC equation is actually taking into account all of the components that are in the feed and adding those together. That summative equation is almost always, well, it is more accurate than ADF. So if you have both, go with the summative equation. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower <laughs> um, than ADF equa- uh, numbers, but the the summative one is is the better estimate. So one of the other things you talk about is just things like crude protein and looking at that. Talk a little about that. Also, I think sometimes, especially out here this year, we had some hay put up pretty wet. We talk about heat damage protein. That can cause some confusion as well. Uh, help us think that through. Well, I mean, I think one of the things um, is crude protein can be useful, especially if you're just thinking about gestating cows, right? Because honestly, you just need nitrogen for those cows. And so one of the things that I suggest is, you know, looking at your haze, if I have multiple haze, I want to look and see, can I strategically use these to meet the needs of the animals that I have? So if I have, you know, some higher quality hay, I might be saving that until later in the season, either in late gestation when they have a little bit higher requirement, or maybe I'm going to use it for my heifers, or maybe I'm going to feed it during lactation. Um, But, you know, be strategic and you want to look at both TDN and crude protein to do that. Now, you just mentioned I got wet hay and it got heat damage. So sometimes you'll see, and it depends on the lab you go to, how what they call it. But one would be like ADIN. And so it's basically a measurement of how much of the protein is bound up with the fiber and it won't be available to the animal. Um, so a lot of labs, when they give you that number, though, they'll give you a second number and it'll say adjusted crude protein. If you see that, that's the number you want to use because it's telling you that this other protein, while it's there, it's not going to be available to the animal. So the adjusted crude protein is is much more viable. Now, the other thing that you have to recognize is that, you know, heifers, growing heifers, um, growing calves and lactating cows, the just total protein may not tell you everything you need to know. They may not be able to meet their needs with that protein because it's often more roomily available and they may need some bypass protein. So uh, when in doubt, again, contact one of us, I mean, an extension, and we can help you make sure that the hay that you have is going to meet the needs of the animals that you have. And if not, help you figure out what the right supplement is. Mary, what else would you highlight on this today as we point towards wrapping up? Well, I think the other one to think about is um, actually, you know, if you're thinking about like phosphorus is another one to to take a look at because especially with hay feeding and gestating cows, oftentimes you don't actually need to be supplementing a lot of phosphorus and it's a fairly expensive um, component of a mineral program. So actually looking at your hays and, and looking at what you have, you might find that, hey, you know, I don't need to be using that. Um, 10% phosphorus or 8% phosphorus. You know, I might be getting away with 2 to 4% phosphorus. In fact, even on corn stocks, 4% phosphorus is usually enough. 
Um, so you can often cut on some costs by making sure you're counting for the phosphorus in your feedstuffs. What else, uh, what advice would you give you, the producers about hay testing and you know making sure they're meeting their needs? Yeah, I really, I think really encourage people to spend the time, spend the money to go ahead and get hay tested. Ideally get it tested before you buy it. Um, you know, I, oftentimes people are buying hay from the same people every year. So they have a relationship and that's, that's a, important thing, but still know what you're buying because there can be, as you said early on in our conversation, a lot of variability from one year to the next. And then I think also just, uh, you know, as we look at, and you already said this, think about what hay do I have on hand and then how can I use that hay strategically to best meet the needs of whatever groups of cattle I have. And that, that can be helpful. Uh, The other thing I just like to think about is sometimes more is not better. And what I mean by that is I'll oftentimes have a conversation with folks and they'll say, well, I've got the opportunity to buy this alfalfa hay and it's 20% crude protein. And I'm, you know, that's going to be the main thing I'm feeding. Well, once we've met that cow's protein needs, additional protein really doesn't do a lot of good for us. I mean, uh, I'm not saying it's a waste, but it's, it can be expensive. So sometimes a lower protein hay, let's say low teens, but actually that's higher in energy maybe a better buy and actually come closer to actually meeting your animal's needs. So be careful, as you said, make sure you look at both numbers because both are important and more ne- isn't necessarily better. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, I mean, a lot of times protein and energy tracks within a hay type, but there's definitely some times where I will see that, you know, you have some higher protein and you have some lower TDN and it that's not always the best suited, especially for um, our dry cows, right? We would have been better off uh, having a little bit lower protein and some more energy. The other thing to think about is if if I do have, you're lucky and you have high quality hay, you you may be able to do something like limit feed the hay a bit and, and save that way. And so, you know, we, we talked a lot about not meeting the needs because it's low quality and figuring out supplementation, but knowing what you've got can also save you on the other end because you might realize, Hey, you know, I can, I can limit them a little bit and unroll um, this much. Hey, and, uh, and now I've saving some money on the other side as well. Hopefully we have that problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also see some scenarios where somebody has some really good high quality alfalfa hay, and maybe they've got some annual forages that go with that. Uh, we can do a scenario where maybe we feed alfalfa two, two days a week, and then we feed our our annual, whether that's millet or sorghum sedan or oat hay, you know, the other days a week. And so there's some ways to manage that because cows can recycle nitrogen and we don't have to feed a balanced diet, so to speak, every day as we're thinking about mature cows and even cows at calving. So that's the other thing. Sometimes there are some logistical things to think through. How can we make this work that uh, you just kind of got to be creative about? Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think that's a really useful to help people work through. So again, you know, you do not have to be able to do all the math and calculations. Um, that's, we can help if, if you want that. So the first step is getting the numbers and the next step is, is using the numbers. Well, there's a lot of good resources at the beef.unl.edu website on this topic. Anything else you'd like to highlight? No, I think we covered it. I mean, um, definitely reach out if you got questions. Well, as Dr. Janowski said, we do have a number of educators and specialists that can help you if you'd like some uh, assistance looking at your hay samples and thinking about how to develop a ration. 
contact information is at the beef.unl.edu website. And also you can find additional resources on the topic there as well.